Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, March 1st. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior continuing our depth chart diving series as we move on to the NL Central. Thanks again to Nando DeFino for stepping in for me last Tuesday. I had family in town. I got to do uh, some actual sightseeing around the Bay Area a little bit, which I haven't done before, Al. I have lived here seven months and I've barely ventured to the two big cities that are within a short drive. Three big cities, really. I haven't spent any time in Oakland either. Uh, so you look at those you look at things like that and you say, why Why don't I just, on the weekend, take the time to go do something? I'm glad I finally did something. I had to take some days off to do it. So thank you to Nando for, for making that happen. Uh, we're going to continue, though, as we have throughout this series, kind of looking team by team, five different teams, anything that sort of catches our eye uh, across the depth chart. It could be undervalued players, playing time battles, anything at all. Everything's fair game. Just a, an excuse to talk about teams and get to corners of the player pool that might have been ignored previously uh it's funny that i say that and then say let's start with the brewers but we've been doing these going from top to bottom in the standings from last season and i'm going to cling to the brewers uh, as nl central champions as long as i possibly can because it hasn't happened that many times in my lifetime this is a team that has three potential top 10 starting pitchers depending on how much you like freddie peralta at least three in the top 20 and probably two in the top five because Burns and Woodruff are often gone within the first five pitchers off the board. But they have two back-end spots in their rotation with three current candidates. So I'm curious, how do you see things shaking out between Aaron Ashby, who actually goes the earliest of the three remaining options, versus Adrian Hauser and Eric Lauer? Because it's a pretty interesting depth chart to sort of figure out, given that Ashby might not be cleared for a full season's workload as a starter. They may have to manage his innings in a way where his role is pretty flexible. Yeah, well, the prospect folks at uh, Fangraphs, I, I was looking at their uh, write-up on Ashby, and um, you know they had said that they you could expect him maybe to take the Freddie Peralta route, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, that you start off uh, in, in relief, and the, then the question is, when would he get elevated? So I, I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of him going before Hauser and Lauer because of the obvious higher uh, ceiling that Ashby has. But I could see this go, really going any one of the three ways DVR, but I do think that the most likely way would be Ashby starting off in the bullpen. He, he spent some time there in 2021 and Hauser and Lauer were, were quite good. So I think that they have to sort of prove that they deserve a demotion to the bullpen and they do Based on 2021, I, I don't think that they've they've uh, proven that that's where they belong yet. So I think until one of them gets hurt or just underperforms, that you'll you'll basically see the same rotation that you saw last year with Ashby getting his chance uh, eventually, or maybe you know at some point the Brewers going going with the six uh, pitcher rotation. Uh, but 
yeah, I, I think that Hauser and Lauer are, are great, uh, you know, late uh, dart throws, especially in 14, 15 team leagues. And, uh, you know, they, they can maybe be streamers for you in a, in a 12 teamer. But Ashby's the one that definitely has the potential this year to, to be something more than that. Ashby had 126 innings combined between low A and high A back in 2019. Of course, no minor league season in 2020. And then he ended up with 95 total regular season innings split between triple A and the big leagues a year ago. I think that past high water mark is a better guide to the range he can jump to if you tack on 30 or so innings from that. Um, not because the you know the Verducci effect or the Verducci rule is actually a thing, but it's just because it's it's this workload management approach that a lot of teams still seem to take. It put him in the 150 to 160 inning range, depending on how much they wanted to push him, which wouldn't be that far behind a lot of other starters. And I think, sure. given some of the skills questions with him, with his control, you sort of want to make sure in shorter bouts that he's able to avoid walking too many guys if he's able to do that then you can ramp him up and as soon as something goes wrong in the rotation or if one of hauser or lauer takes a step back or if someone gets hurt you make that move then so i think if you're drafting ashby you're probably doing it with some reduced early season expectations about workload if you said he's going to be a starter for four months out of the season i would put my chips on june through september i wouldn't say he's going to start in the rotation and then go the other way and end up in the bullpen. I think it's more likely they would move him there later. So managing your roster becomes a little bit tricky if you do decide to go with Ashby around that pick 250 range. And I'm with you. you know, Adrian Hauser, if we if we believe that limiting hard contact and limiting barrels is a skill that pitchers have, that's a skill that Adrian Hauser appears to have. Well, it gets a lot of ground ball, so that certainly certainly makes it easier to do. And you know, there are ground ball pitchers that uh, allow enough damage when they're not keeping it down that uh, they're they're not really fancy viable. But like you say, it appears that Hauser is not really, at least in the past, he's not really been subject to that. So I, I give him a shot to to start with that role and and keep it. Yeah, and I think of the two, Hauser versus Lauer, I actually have more confidence in Eric Lauer of, of the two, believe it or not. I think part of my issue with Hauser is that he doesn't miss enough bats and his walk rate's a little higher than you'd like it to be for a guy that doesn't strike a lot of guys out. Like You just you can't get by for very long with both of those things. You could be a low strikeout pitcher, but you can't be a low strikeout pitcher with a high walk rate. That's just a, a combination that rarely leads to success. Let's go to the position player side for the Brewers, and I'll make this one a really simple question. Is the market slightly underrating Willie Adames? I mean, the numbers after the trade to Milwaukee last year, a 285 average, a 366 OBP, 521 slugging percentage, 20 homers in 99 games, and counting stats that would have paced out to about 90 RBIs and 90 runs scored over a full season. And on top of that, a 25.4% strikeout rate, which if that were his full season mark, would have been the best strikeout rate of his career. I, you know, in spite of all those numbers, and there's some other numbers I think that you can make to to support uh, Adamas being, you know, roughly that good in 2022. Shortstop is so deep that <laughs> I don't think he's being undervalued by much. Uh, since, uh, well, basically over the last two weeks, Willie Adamas has a 125 uh, ADP in NFBC leagues. He is 18th among shortstop eligible players. So that sounds like a huge underrating. But you look at who he's behind 
uh, right behind Jake Cronenworth. I mean, I think that that's, that should be reversed. Two spots behind Dansby Swanson. I would argue that that should be reversed. Then you got Carlos Correa, Bobby Witt Jr., Corey Seager. Uh, I think Jazz Chisholm is being way overdrafted as 12th at the position. But, you know, you're getting the idea here. Like, there's a lot of quality deep at shortstop. But So I do think that Willie Adamas is being underrated, but not not really by that much. But um, the, the other stat that I want to point out is that as a member of the, of the Rays, he slashed 219, 277, 347 at the trop. 291, 363, 495 everywhere else. So if you are looking for a reason to buy into those Brewer stats, I think that's a pretty good one. Yeah, he spoke about how much he didn't like hitting in Tampa Bay, too. So the numbers bear it out. There have been other players who've talked about how difficult it is to hit there. It's not it's not a great ballpark in terms of lighting and the batter's eye and some things that could impact you on a very individual sort of level. So it all really checks out. But I I would say the point you're making about the depth at shortstop is, I think, a big part of why he goes where he does. There are more established options, guys that have a little more power or have a little more speed or a longer track record of producing at their respective levels. A lot of those guys are the guys that are going ahead of him. Uh, I'm not going to bring up Bobby Witt Jr. and say I would take Willie Adames straight up over Bobby Witt Jr. Oh, I just did, but uh, for this <laughs> for this year only, I think I, I have a lot more trust in Adames, even though Bobby Witt Jr. has superstar potential and Willie Adames simply does not, even though he's a very good player. So I, I would say, yeah, he's he's definitely a little underrated. I also think we're at a point where I'm willing to draft someone to fill the middle infield spot probably as early as I've ever been. And even a couple of seasons ago, I think shortstop became deep enough where you could have a team very easily in a mixed league where your shortstop and your middle infielder and your UT player were all shortstops. Like that was unheard of back when I started playing fantasy baseball. Guys at the position just didn't hit like that. At least most of them didn't. It was a very top-heavy position previously, and that is no longer the case. Uh, I said this to Nando a couple of weeks ago on an episode of Under the Radar, but the Universal DH... It gives us a chance at Rowdy Telez and Keston Hira coexisting in the same lineup with regular playing time, which is actually pretty exciting if you have any interest at all in Hira as a bounce back. He's a late dart at this point, Al. Are you taking the chance on Hira with the swing changes he's reportedly made this offseason? Will Salmon had a nice piece about that in The Athletic. It's sight unseen right now since spring training hasn't started and we don't have any sort of... you know exhibition sort of result to go off of to get excited about. But if that happens, if, if Hira comes out and, and mashes in whatever form of spring training we might get, he's probably going to jump up and be a little less of a late flyer. Uh, so what are you doing with him as a guy that had immediate success when he came into the league, but had some pretty clear flaws in terms of the swing and miss in his profile? Yeah, well, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we don't have those uh, exhibition results to look at. But I, nonetheless, I am really, really intrigued uh, on the fact that that he's worked on the swing and that there's some reason to hope that he can pick up where he left off from that rookie season and you know not where he's left off uh, the last two seasons. So he's a, a great uh, player to just you know if you have a, a short list of players that you're just going to be targeting in the the last couple of rounds of the reserve rounds and in, in most drafts. He's he's going to be on my short list, so uh, I I just love the the potential that he has there for a, a huge huge return. Yeah, and I I think Roddy Telez is also pretty interesting with less of a crowd around him. That in Toronto I always felt like he was 
looking over his shoulder at someone possibly taking over playing time in the first base and DH mix. In Milwaukee, he's got a chance to be part of the everyday mix, at least against righties. Maybe he sits against a lot of lefties because they can mix and match at a few different spots, and that would certainly be one of those positions. But a cheap 20 home run season from him with a decent average wouldn't really be all that surprising, especially in leagues where you can make moves twice a week or every day. I think he's actually a nice option. Maybe in in straight-up old-school weekly leagues, you're losing a little bit more playing time than you'd like there, but the cost certainly isn't prohibitive for Rowdy Telez either. Let's go over to St. Louis, where I would say I'm a long-term Giovanni Gallegos skills believer, and yet I'm skeptical about him having a full share of the closer role because they've got a pretty good bullpen. They can mix and match, and we've also got a new new manager, Ali Marmol, so we don't know how much the Cardinals might want to follow some of the teams in the league that have been a lot more fluid with their ninth inning situations. I think you could make a pretty clear argument that Gallegos is the Cardinals' best reliever, but the unknown is whether or not they want to use their best reliever in most or all of their save situations. Yeah, I think that's going to remain an unknown. I I wish I had documented this, DVR, because I I do recall seeing a report maybe about a month, month and a half ago that there was going to be a save-sharing situation with the Cardinals. But even in in absence of that information, I think that given the way that this bullpen is constructed, that that's something you could anticipate. But I'm with you. I mean, Gallegos has been an obvious closer in waiting and has the skills to just inch his way into a more prominent role uh, among a committee. So for me, that's enough to to certainly edge him up, probably around like the top 12 or so uh, relievers, probably not top 10 for me just because of that little bit of uncertainty. But uh, I'd certainly be, be, I guess maybe not happy, but I'd, I'd be content to have Gallegos as my RP1. Yeah, I think it would probably lead me to be a lot more aggressive with my second and third sources of saves. I'm... I don't want to dismiss the possibility that as teams continue to go further down the committee approach that the leader of the committee might still be a really valuable reliever, right? I mean, it could still turn out in a way where Gallegos ends up with 20 saves. You could have a a 30-10 split, and that's still really good because there aren't that many guys who are going to get to 30 saves anyway. So when the price is lower than it is on Gallegos, I'm even more optimistic. I think he's kind of at full freight right now, and I, I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant to use a fringe top 100 overall pick, given some of that uncertainty. When I think I can get similar skills a little bit later and have a comparable amount of, of job security, so much of my my early saves fear is the result of drafting in NFBC leagues, draft and hold formats that they don't have either in-season moves and none of them have trades. So you you can't fix the problem. <laughs> you are yeah. you are stuck with what you have. So I think that has really kind of ratcheted up my my fear of missing out on saves, but as we get into we have labor auctions starting up this weekend, we've got tout wars in a couple of weeks as we get to the more of the the industry events where you have in-season moves and you have trades or the, the regular NFBC events where you can make in-season moves. I'm going to try and ease up a little bit on my aggressiveness sort towards saves because I think there is uh, too much of an overcorrection happening broader in the market right now, even though I'm part of the problem, double tapping <laughs> early closers and trying to avoid these issues in leagues where I can't make moves later. 
Yeah. Well, it does, I think, make sense to adjust that in leagues where you can where you can try to make allowances uh, in fab and, you know, through trades. So, uh, but it's, it's never as easy as you think it's going to be. No, it never is. It's just as an example, like Taylor Rogers, where he goes, I feel like is, is similar to Gallegos in terms of my saves expectation. Maybe Gallegos has clearly better skills, but I could see Rogers getting low twenties in saves this year. And if you're getting him closer to pick 200, that looks like a pretty good value by comparison. Uh, the starting rotation I think it can get good results and better than expected results in part because the Cardinals have a good defense and because New Bush Stadium is playing as a very pitcher-friendly park. Only one starter inside the top 100 in terms of ADP, not surprisingly. It's Jack Flaherty. He's been going around pick 82. Adam Wainwright coming off of just an amazing renaissance season in 2021. It's kind of a fringe top 200 overall guy. Then you've got Steven Matz about 50 picks later and two darts in Dakota Hudson and Miles Michaelis, who have missed a lot of time uh, due to injury. Uh, funny that the show sheet auto-corrected Miles' first name to Mike. Not really sure why it did that, but uh, watch out for that. <laughs> Let's start with Flaherty for a second. This is a, a discount compared to where Flaherty's been going the last couple of draft seasons, and I'm curious to know if you are interested in him as maybe a SP1 type pitcher in disguise, or if you think that the the injury history paired with some of the minor skills flaws have kind of rightfully put him in the group with Jose Barrios and some of these other good pitchers that aren't quite at that top 10 sort of level. Well, I don't think that he belongs where uh, he's being drafted. Like you said, just slightly behind Jose Barrios, um, just slightly ahead of Dylan Cease. And I like Cease for where he's going, but Flaherty has shown ace potential before. I'm not saying that I, I'm assuming that that's where he's going to be now, but there's, you know, there's quite a bit of gray area between drafting him along the, the bona fide SP ones and, um, you know, passing on him where, where he's, he's at. I mean, he's clearly, I think a, a tremendous value, uh, just being right outside of the top uh, 80, uh, right now. So yeah, I, I wouldn't feel great. I mean, I think the question as you framed it was, would I be happy with him as like a, an SP one in disguise? Like, you know, maybe that be a, a way to deal with the, the strategy DVR that you're, you've been taking with, um, you know, taking the two closers early, maybe waiting on starting pitching as a result and, and getting Flaherty at his current ADP. I wouldn't be super comfortable with that but if you're going to go that route that's probably going to be one of your better options so i'd be much more comfortable with flarity as an as an sp2 who maybe then gives me a bonus second ace you want to have some starting pitching toss-ups here real quick absolutely all right straight up logan webb or jack flarity for 2022 i would go uh flarity there okay there's only about a 10 pick difference at adp so they're absolutely within the same tier Kevin Gossman going back to the AL East or Jack Flaherty? I would. That that's a really really tough one. I I'm going to go Flaherty there because obviously Gossman brings his own risk now going to Toronto. Yeah, that's just a rough division to be in right now. Yeah. Lance Lynn or Jack Flaherty? Yeah, that's a tough one too. I think this is. Or I'm I'm going to go Lynn. I'm just afraid of, of being the, the person that has Lance Lynn the year that he loses some velo because if the velo dips, I just think his margin for error is very small since he's so fastball dependent. I know the fastball has like five different shapes, so it's not 
it's not really one pitch, but I have some lingering concerns, I think, that were surfaced by the Astros in that uh, that playoff matchup with the White Sox last year. How about Joe Musgrove versus Jack Flaherty? Definitely going Flaherty there. See, I'm, like, yeah, I, I spent too much time with Eno, so I <laughs> I think he's got Musgrove either in the top ten or right outside his top ten. So now I now I look at Musgrove and I'm like, okay, if Eno likes him that much and he's going down there within this cluster where I feel like a lot of these guys are very similar, I'm erring on the side of Musgrove, and it's like, no, be be your own person, just. Get it done. Like get it done yourself. <laughs> Musgrove versus Flaherty on my actual rankings before I saw what Eno had. I did have Musgrove three spots ahead. So it, I'm barely on the Musgrove side of that one. But if if we asked Eno for a third opinion, he'd say you guys are ridiculous. It's definitely Musgrove. Uh, but Flaherty, I, I I think I'm I'm higher on him than most people appear to be at this point. Max Freed versus Flaherty is kind of interesting to me. I mean, where would you go with that possible decision? Yeah, I think I'd uh, continue to go to go Flaherty there. Okay, so yeah, probably five or so spots among pitchers undervalued. Uh, a solid high end SP two is probably the best way to describe him. If you get a you get an ace season out of him, then great. But you don't have to expect that based on on where he's going. And I do like him regardless of whether you wait on pitching or not. I think he he makes a lot of sense where he's going right now. As far as the other Cardinals, I mean the Wainwright turnaround. I've been puzzled by this for months. And in addition to having a great curveball, I saw Alex Fast sharing some information about the sinker being as effective as it's really ever been for Adam Wynn, right? So it wasn't just the curveball. It was two very good pitches. Uh, so it's not quite the Rich Hill, the curveball's great and everything else just kind of happens around it because the curveball's so good. It's just such an unusual path. Adam Wainwright's going to turn 41 in August, the price isn't that bad. Clearly, the market is skeptical too. Where do you fall on him? Are you happy to draft him in the range of where he goes? Do you think people are being silly and and just holding back because of his age, or do you think this is another situation where maybe the the wheels could fall off very quickly? Because from 2016 to 2019, it was you know, pretty bad ratios and a very modest K rate in in two of those four seasons. Well, I don't think it's it's a silly stance to to be waiting on him that long. Uh, you know, I certainly get the aversion to any pitcher in his forties who's you know got uh, at best uh, an average strikeout rate. But um, you mentioned before the defense. I think that's something that that helps him out a lot. I don't think it's accidental that he's got a uh, you know much better than average BABIP rate over the last couple of seasons. Um, and last year, two hundred six and a third innings. I don't see any reason to think that he's not going to give you just a lot of innings, you know, and obviously that, that compensates somewhat for the low strikeout rate. Uh, you know, maybe he approaches the 17 wins again that he got last year. So I, I've always really liked this kind of pitcher because we, we devalue as a community, we devalue these kinds of pitchers and they have value. So I understand the the reticence to draft somebody, uh, with the idea that they're going to come close to a previous season's performance when when they're in their forties, but at uh, you know a, a pick outside the top two hundred, I mean, I, I'd be willing to reach a little bit to make sure that I've got all those innings and uh, wins potential and a, a decent to you know possibly very good ERA 
uh, in my rotation. Yeah, I, I I really like where Wainwright's going a lot. I think it's kind of funny because in the same division, we've got Kyle Hendricks, who is coming off of one bad season after, geez, I mean, like six or seven straight good ones from a ratios perspective. Never been a great strikeout pitcher, but because of volume, he ends up kind of getting close to where you need him to be. He comes off of one bad year, and I think every single projection system on Fangraphs has Kyle Hendricks projected for worse ratios than Adam Wainwright even though Wainwright had that four-year stretch where he just couldn't turn that corner. He couldn't find that that previous form. So it's just, I don't know, I just find it fascinating that they're they're kind of similar in their, in their underlying profiles, and yet all it took was one great season from Wainwright and one bad season from Hendricks to completely flip expectations and projections for those two players. Of the remaining rotation guys, do you like any one of Matt's or Dakota Hudson or Miles Michaelis? Because I am O for draft season drafting any of the three of them. I could see myself being in that that same category. Uh, I mean, of the three, I think Matt's probably has the most appeal for me. Maybe a, a little bit more potential in terms of strikeouts, but you know, I mean, Matt's is a a dart throw in in twelve teamers. That that makes sense to me. Uh, Hudson and Michaelis. They're really just being drafted in pretty deep leagues, and that makes sense to me too. I don't, I don't really see where the appeal is to be taking a flyer on them versus, uh, you know, a, a flyer. Well, for example, we're going to talk about the Reds next, and you know, one of their young pitchers. Uh, I, I'd rather, you know, in the four hundreds be be targeting them uh, versus Hudson or Michaelis if if those are my choices. Yeah, Dakota Hudson gives me uh, some strong Adrian Hauser vibes. Actually, like they'll just. That profile, lots of ground balls, not a ton of strikeouts, more walks than you'd like. With that defense behind him, and the Brewers have a good defense too. You can you could talk yourself into it in the right format. I see Hudson though as much more of a, a streamer, someone that's going to be on and off rosters in a lot of mixed leagues rather than someone who's going to be drafted late and kept all season in like a ten or a twelve team mixed league. Maybe things will be different in leagues with 15 or more teams, and of course in mono leagues, NL-only leagues, maybe he's a great value there as well. With Michaelis, Mm -hmm. just too many ups and downs with arm injuries for me to want to throw a dart there, even though the cost is as low as it's ever been. Uh, One position player question for me with the Cardinals, there's no risk of lost playing time at all, but how much do the changes in the underlying stat cast numbers for Nolan Arenado give you some concern about the direction he's headed. Like very good accumulator. And maybe that's all that matters because we're playing a, a volume based game, but there are definitely some warts in the underlying profile that have made me start to think that we're going to see some decline in the next couple of years beyond what we just started to see in his first season with the cards. Yeah. I'm not really so much worried about decline from Arenado. I think what we saw in 2021 is would be a really good projection for what we're going to see in 2022. And one of the tricky things in terms of figuring this out for Arenado is that he pulled uh, balls at a much, much higher rate, particularly fly balls. So if you're trying to figure out, well, how did he basically, you know, put together uh, an ISO that was, you know, nearly on par with the ones that he, he had as a Rocky playing games in Bush stadium. I mean, that's, that's the clear answer there. He just, he was pulling the ball more often. And so on top of, the, the BABIP downgrade that you would expect from a player going from Coors to just about any other park other than maybe Fenway. Uh, on top of that, he was you know hurting his batting average 
by by pulling fly balls. So I think you know what what you saw there in terms of a 255 average, but you know maintaining mid 30s home run power. You could expect that this year, unless you know if he he winds up regressing in terms of the the pulled flies, then you're, you're maybe going to see a slightly higher average and uh, a dip in in power, which would I think be a net negative. So that's that that's the only kind of uh, decline that I'm really worried about. But I I think that the um, the projections have basically built that risk into them, and I think that those are commensurate with where you know where he's going just inside the top seventy in NFBC leagues. So I don't see I don't see a whole lot of risk. Like I think if if I want to get a third baseman at that point in the draft, uh, I'm I'm happy to take Arenado. I don't feel like I'm really taking a risk of getting a player who's who's going to give me something far less than than what I should be getting in that slot. I mean, he's still not striking out a lot, so I, I think yeah. he'll. He'll age reasonably well as a hitter. I think it's more of just a, a dip in power. I, I think I if I could see him losing eight to ten homers off of the thirty four that he hit last year, but the counting stats should still be good. The average I would be surprised if it was any lower than it was last year. I guess that's the one downside to the the very pull happy approach is if the power starts to go away, those become long outs, and then the average could slide down even further. But this reminds me of kind of the peak Brian Dozier sort of approach. If you remember, a lot of his home runs were, were pulled at Target Field back in the day, and it was good while it lasted, and then all of a sudden it was like, whoa, Brian Dozier's a, a part-time guy. I don't think it, it works like that for Arenado because of his defense and a few other factors, but if you told me he's a 20-home run guy going forward, I wouldn't fight back on that. I'd say, yeah, that, that actually kind of makes sense to me. Uh, so be careful in this range if you're expecting 30-plus homers from Arenado again. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's go to Cincinnati. This is a team that accidentally built itself for Universal DH, and I'm here for a low-key Mike Moustakis rebound. He's had a lot of injury issues. I think he had a, a bout with COVID back in, in 2020, and he's basically free at a position, third base, that thins out quite a bit. So what are what are your thoughts on Moustakis as a guy that could actually maybe do something similar to our expectations for Nolan Arenado from a rotisserie standpoint, if the health holds up, you know, it's not unreasonable, but that's the thing. If the health holds up and it certainly worries me that he missed a lot of time with a heel issue and uh, eventually was, you know, diagnosed as plantar fasciitis. So I I think you're not taking any risk uh, targeting Moustakis and and the thing is if he's healthy then yeah then maybe you do get something close to or even equivalent to Arenado uh, really really late so I you know add him to that that short list uh, you know towards the end of the draft of players who could really give you a humongous return yeah I I think he I mean when people saw him going into Cincinnati I think it for a lot of analysts it was oh wow the the 30 plus home runs we're seeing during this brief time in Milwaukee, like this, this could be a part of his future for a bit longer than we expected, right? I think that was that was something. Thirty-eight homers in twenty seventeen with the Royals was a surprise that he followed it up in the year of the Rabbit Ball with thirty-five in Milwaukee. 
caught some people off guard. I would not be at all surprised to see him as one of the kind of boring bounce-back players of the year. Again, health-permitting. I think the DH spot, it would be good for a few guys in this team, right? Take some of the wear and tear off of Eugenio Suarez, gives Joey Votto the occasional respite from playing some defense. Uh, I'm kind of curious to see how much they they play Kyle Farmer at shortstop. I think he exceeded everyone's expectations last year, which, you know, good for him. But uh, a lot of us in the fantasy community are wondering if Jose Barrero can take over that job. But, you know, Farmer could be a long-tailed DH guy for them too. But Moustakis, I think, ultimately has the most clear playing time increase for me when I kind of look at the depth chart and, and see how these pieces will actually fit together. Uh, the Reds are another team that actually have a pretty good, strong rotation it's not quite as loaded as what the brewers have in terms of where the top guys go but they've got three spots clearly covered already and three to four more interesting candidates fighting for the last two spots so out of reaver san martin vladimir gutierrez and then the prospects hunter green and nick lodolo are you finding any particularly interesting values vying for those final two spots yeah, I mean, I think everybody you mentioned, maybe with the exception of Gutierrez, who uh, even though he's logged the the most innings uh, uh, of, of any of them, I mean, uh, Hunter Green and, and Nick Lodolo haven't even debuted yet, but um, he's, you know, if he's in there just because of the experience, I don't think he stays in there because clearly the other three have a lot more upside. Uh, of the three, uh, I, I think I like Green the most just because he did get a little more exposure in triple a last year. And while the, the overall numbers weren't great, the skills were, were pretty impressive. Just had a little bit of a home run issue. Uh, but you know, both he and Lodolo should definitely be uh late round flyers, but San Martin, I mean, if, if he winds up getting a lot of innings, he could wind up, you know, being 12 team relevant. So uh, I, I like all three. It's sort of hard for me to rank order them. Yeah. San Martin's, Minor league numbers are pretty good. I mean, the ratios, most of his stops are impressive. The walk rates have never really been bad. They're actually usually good. And there have been flashes of, of some strikeout stuff in there too. So I think I've got I think I've got him first in terms of short term impact out of this bunch. I think if you're playing any sort of multi year league, obviously there's there's more appeal with both Green and Lodolo, but since we're so focused on 2022 only, I could see San Martin being the best flyer of the four, even though I, I certainly like the talent that the other prospects bring. Yeah, uh, yeah probably the most certainty out of the group um, combined with, with upside. So it, there's, there's really a lot to like with all of them. And like one of your last picks in a 15-team league as things stand right now, uh, maybe not even the kind of guy that you would draft in a 12-teamer, but you'd be quickly ready to add him as a streamer, two-star pitcher, or whatever it might be once the season actually begins. So just an interesting group, and maybe there's room for three of these guys depending on any possible trades that are made once the lockout is over. I think that was one of the rumors that the Reds might actually be willing to trade Sonny Gray, and that would open up a lot of innings for one more of these four pitchers. The bullpen situation in Cincinnati, I, I'm starting to look at this team and say they're in the committee club they're there with the rays the mariners the twins is that deserved i mean they have a guy in lucas sims who i think could be a very good closer if given the opportunity but i don't see him necessarily getting the job all to himself 
I don't either. And some of that is based on, you know, recent history. Some of that is based on the fact that, you know, Sims is not in terms of ERA hasn't really performed all that well, but again, you have to like the skills. You maybe have to be a little scared of the fact that he's a fly ball pitcher in Cincinnati. Although I'm really encouraged by the fact that he's hardly he's in his career spanning five seasons. He's given up a total of 23 barrels for a rate under 5%. So I think that that's a risk that maybe I have been overestimating, but um I, I personally, I'm, I'm seeing it as a committee situation, like I said, partly because of, of recent history, but also a, a lack of trust in Sims that maybe isn't fully deserved. Because I, I look at this bullpen and it's not one that screams out at me like, wow, how are we going to find enough saves for everybody? I mean, maybe Amir Garrett gets back into that picture, but I don't see anybody who just, you know, screams closer out of this group. So for that reason, I think maybe the Reds don't quite belong in the same category as some of those other other bullpens that you mentioned. I mean, with Sims, I think we're probably excited because for the last three seasons, the K rate's been combined over 33%, which is really nice. The walk rate's a little on the higher side, but he did improve that last year. 9.2% is where that landed in 2021. There is a bit of a home run issue, probably in part because of Great American Ballpark. You mentioned the ability to reduce barrels. Like, that's a good sign, I think, for the home runs maybe coming down one more level. I and mean, it's just such a small sample that there's a lot of noise baked in there. But a 250 Sierra from Lucas Sims, that was easily the best of his career so far. So uh, I, I would put him kind of in that Taylor Rogers bucket that I referenced earlier, where even if I don't expect him to be the guy, I think he's draftable where he's going because half the saves in Cincinnati could be his. I'm fairly comfortable saying there's a good enough chance he gets 20 with a lot of strikeouts that I I could use him as maybe my second closer, ideally more of a third if I'm being very aggressive with that category. Uh, but it just seems like ever since David Bell took over as the manager there, they've they've had this push toward going to a committee. They had Rysel Iglesias initially, and uh, once they traded him, it seemed like the floodgates were open to just mix and match and play the matchups in the late innings. Let's talk about the Cubs for a bit, Al. I was lucky enough to speak to Sahadev Sharma a few weeks ago about them, and he was probably as surprised as I was about the Marcus Stroman addition, but it's an incomplete offseason picture, and maybe they're going to go out and add Trevor Story or Michael Conforto or another bat. They're going to do something else to bolster this roster. Maybe they're going to add a Colin McHugh or somebody else to the bullpen and fortify that situation. It, it just seems like they they have too many holes to be a team that added a good pitcher in free agency. So it could, this could all be subject to change, but I think the way this works, especially with universal DH on the way, Frank Schwindel is probably going to get a prolonged opportunity to show us that 2021 wasn't a fluke. Even if Anthony Rizzo went back to the Cubs, if that became a thing, there'd be the first base in DH roles for those two guys to share. So what do you think about Schwindel as a, an older player that had a, a second-half breakout last year? I've been avoiding him so far, even though it's not a bad profile. It's just that I'm I'm very skeptical that the league won't be able to figure him out based on the fact that he couldn't get an opportunity at the big league level prior to last season. Yeah, and I'm weighing that a lot. And I, you know, I look at what he did last season. It's basically in line with his recent minor league numbers. But again, you have to take those with the grain, given that he's 29 years old. 
Uh, and so yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what's up, you know, with a 326, 371, 591 slash line last year, you know, mostly with the Cubs. And the the um, StatCast stats really don't support that. He had an 8% barrel rate, which is, you know, sort of mediocre. It's not bad, but doesn't really jive with those numbers. And then that's reflected in the uh, X slug, which was 451. Uh, 140 points below what he actually slugged. So, you know, I think that that not only maybe um, indicates that he got some home runs that he shouldn't have gotten, but, you know, maybe some some doubles too. He had a 348 BABIP rate that I I can't find a reason to believe in. So I, I've stayed away from Schwindel and I'll be surprised if I draft him anywhere this year because I think if he doesn't come close to what he did last year, then as thin as the Cubs roster is right now, obviously that could change, but as thin as it looks right now, I could see him losing a lot of playing time. Yeah, I think part of it for me too is if they do make things more crowded in the infield, I expect Clint Frazier to be a DH a lot on this team. Maybe the addition of Jan Gomes puts Wilson Contreras into that spot. Like They might float this with three or four different players on a regular basis. That wouldn't be all that surprising you know, based on the way they're constructed, but as you start to move players around in the depth chart, the other thing I've wondered about is, are the Cubs going to play Ian Happ in center field, at least until Brennan Davis maybe gets promoted enough to let Frazier get 500-plus plate appearances this year? Because part of the shuffling, I think, has to include Frazier also playing left field. And for that to happen, Happ has to play somewhere else, which cost Rafael Ortega playing time. I think all of this is a long way of saying I just... I think Rafael Ortega was a nice story in 2021, but even though he put the ball in the air more than ever, and that could help to explain where some of that pop came from, I'm very skeptical. I'm more skeptical of Ortega than I am of Schwindel, and I'm very skeptical of Schwindel to begin with. <laughs> yeah, same here as well. And again, as it's constituted right now, uh, it doesn't look like there's you know players of the roster who you know could step into either of those slots and necessarily perform any better, but. It does, you know, I think that signing Marcus Stroman definitely signals that, uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if the Cubs make make some moves on the offense side. And uh, then, you know, I think some of these players like Schwindel and Ortega are really skating on thin ice. They become, you know, 300 plate appearance guys yeah. instead of 500 plus plate appearance guys. It doesn't take much. And they can play their way out of those roles even without additions. I think that's the other the other part of this that is working against them. But I do like Clint Frazier as a late dart where he's going as basically your last outfielder. I think it's less up and down, less in and out of the lineup than we saw throughout most of his time with the Yankees. I think he's got that kind of Hunter Renfro sort of profile where when you let a guy like that just play, you can get 250 with 25 homers fairly easily, even if you know, the, the OBP in the case of a guy like Renfro isn't what you want. I think Frazier's shown us he can draw a lot of walks. So there could be a, a lot of real life value in his offensive profile that keeps him in a pretty prominent spot in this uh, rebuilding Cubs lineup as well. The pitching side is loaded with undervalued players. Like I mentioned, Kyle Hendricks in passing earlier, he's outside the top 250 overall right now. Even Marcus Stroman, I would have expected in a pitcher-friendly environment to go earlier than he's been going so far. He's sitting out there in the 175 to 200 range in a lot of drafts. Edbert Alzali, who I think showed us some interesting skills growth last year, well outside the top 300. And even Wade Miley, who they got basically for nothing from the Reds, I think he's a useful innings eater. I think people sleep a little bit on him as someone that has that 
earlier mentioned ability to limit hard contact. Yeah, and I appreciate that you're grouping in Wade Miley uh, because I think this could be another year of me being a Miley guy. <laughs> and it goes back to, you know, what what I was saying about Wainwright. Like, I do like this kind of pitcher in terms of, uh, you know, the, the value that they represent in drafts. People just overlook them. And, you know, a really similar profile with, with Miley uh, that he's able to uh, avoid the, the hard contact and he's, you know, maybe helps you more with bulk innings than with, with a, a strikeout rate. But... Um, yeah, I, I think that there's late round value there for Miley. I mean, you know, not just we're talking about mid 400s for him, but 12 teamers, he's probably more of a stream option that you wouldn't have to draft. But I'd say anything deeper, he's definitely a, a late round, going to be a late round target for me. And yeah, I, I like the uh, the upside potential that Alzali offers there. Hendricks is the one I'm not sure I disagree with the community on because and I know you talked about him earlier in reference to, to Wainwright and kind of making a comparison there. And yeah, maybe he just, maybe 2021 was just an off year for Hendricks and, and he gets right back to his level. But the thing is, you know, with Wainwright, we're, you know, even now after having two good seasons in a row, we're not, you know, collectively really respecting that. And I, I think at the very least, Hendricks needs to show it to us in 2022, maybe for us to buy it in 2023. And I've, drafted Hendricks a lot over the years and felt like he was um, being underdrafted as a whole. But I understood that, you know, he had a certain profile that once you start to see cracks in it, there's a lot of vulnerability there. And and I, I definitely want to be assured that, that, that he's going to rebound from that and not just bank on a, on a return and a, a regression to his previous, his previous norms. So I'm, I'm all right with Hendricks with where he's being drafted um, really just barely inside the top 300. Yeah, it's tough for me to say who do you like most as a relative value because I think they're they're all kind of placed into spots where it makes sense to me. I think the the warts you're referring to with Hendricks, uh, 8.9% swinging strike rate that was down from 10.3 in 2019. He was actually up at 11.6 in the shortened 2020 season as well. His career rate's 9.2, so he's not not way down for his career, but he's just tracking downward after taking that little leap two seasons ago, and he got hit more in the zone last season, an 87.9% zone contact percentage for Kyle Hendricks. That was his highest zone contact percentage since 2015. So I I know it's a small margin for error when you're dealing in the high 80s the way that he does, and uh, it's really a command and control profile first. I don't think he lost that skill. That, that That's part of where I have that, that bounce back hope for him but I would say if Kyle Hendricks comes out and his April or his first month of the season looks a lot like 2021 in a lot of mixed leagues you're probably going to have to be willing to drop him which is not something you would have done with a a bad month from Kyle Hendricks in the past because we're at that point where if he lost a little something yeah he's he's not going to come all the way back and then he is more of a, a streamer than you would like him to be um, so I, I guess because he's a lot safer, because there's more ways he gets guys out, Stroman is the one Cubs pitcher. If I, even if I think all four of these guys are appropriately or even slightly undervalued, if I can only have one, I'll take Stroman where he's going and feel a lot better about it because you're kind of hoping for something with each of the other three. With Alzali, I think it's just that he has a, a more consistent third pitch and that the home run rate kind of comes back to a, a normal sort of level. He had a pretty big home run issue last year 1.79 homers per nine he didn't have that in the minors so you know maybe with 
better command and, and another weapon, he can bring that number down. But some steps in the right direction with uh, the walk rate, especially last year. I thought that was a really encouraging sign for Alzale, at, le- at least with the reduced walk rate. He wasn't hurting himself with the long ball and the free passes. You can get by with one. You can't really get by with both. Let's talk about the Pirates. Uh, they're always last in something like this. It, maybe not for long, though, because the system is pretty good. A lot of those players are, are knocking on the door to contribute at least something in 2022, and they're probably the team whose depth chart today will look the most different than their depth chart in September. Which of their position player prospects, if any, are you drafting right now because you expect them to be in a regular role for most or all of the season? Not many, I think. Uh, Key Brian Hayes, you would think, would be very safe there. O'Neill Cruz, obviously, uh, you know, just getting getting his start as a major leaguer. Um, you know, that, I mean, Brian Reynolds, I suppose, but um, wouldn't completely shock me to see them try to get a haul for him. But I, I, I yeah, I think I'm not really expecting that, but yeah, I, I think that for me, that's about it. Do you see anybody else? Cause uh, yeah, I, I feel like there could be a lot of turnover here. I think I understand why people like O'Neill Cruz. I haven't drafted him yet because there's still, there's still risk. They'll make him spend some time at triple a He basically skipped that level last year so they can make him wait a month before letting him debut and like do I want to do I want to burn what I think is like one bench spot you get one bench spot that you could have a zero from initially before by the time you get to May you got to start making a decision to let that player go if if injuries don't force you to do it sooner do I want to use that roster spot on a guy that probably has double digit home run power from the jump and could offer speed right away I mean what Cruz was doing at double A last year, 12 homers, 18 for 21 as a base dealer in 62 games. It's pretty exciting. And triple A last year was a mess. So I'm kind of glad we didn't see him go tear up triple A, given how bad the quality was there. I almost feel better about him seeing time at triple A this year with the potential for a healthier group of big league players and then more quality depth working at that level. I guess it's, it's all just kind of a, a question of, how quickly do you think he can adjust to big league pitching? He's huge. If you have never seen O'Neill Cruz, he's one of the tallest players you've ever seen on a baseball field. He's six seven. He's a shortstop for now. It's an awfully big strike zone for a young hitter to have to figure out. Aaron Judge had to go through this too. So I just worry that he is the type of player that even though he does some really exciting things, the raw power is legit. It was on display with that max exit velo we saw from him in his cameo with Pittsburgh at the end of the year. Even though there's all these good things in the profile, it just might take a little longer than we'd like for him to unlock it. I think that leap from double A to the big leagues, if they let him do that, or even from a better version of triple A this year to the big leagues, is still going to be one that causes some problems for him, even though that long-term future is very bright. So for me, I'm, I'm more interested in... They're not even like the top-end prospects among the position players. It's more like... If Travis Swaggerty is healthy, I'm interested. I'm not drafting him right now. He's more of a watch list sort of player, but he's the kind of guy that could emerge and have a significant role in the outfield sooner rather than later. I think they have a few young infielders that in NL-only leagues are on the radar, and they're probably watch list guys for mixed leagues. You've got 
Rodolfo Castro, you've got Diego Castillo, and Tucapita Marcano. I think the problem with Marcano is that he might be a better real-life player than a fantasy player, so it might be batting average and not much else, so that only plays in a couple of formats. Castro is one of those guys that I don't know where exactly he's going to play. Second base, I guess, would be my my best guess. He switch hits. The numbers in the big leagues were kind of underwhelming, but he was also at double-A last year, showed some power and speed. Didn't have a great OBP there, though, so again, we're kind of throwing darts in really deep leagues. I just think we're hitting this point with this group where they're finally ready to start moving on from a few of their holdovers, the Kevin Newman types. Like Newman's a great defender, so maybe that keeps his glove in the lineup and keeps him keeps him playing, even if he's not hitting the way he did in 2019. But I think you're going to see better guys emerge in between the likes of Henry Davis and Nick Gonzalez and some of the names that we're really excited about for 2023 and beyond. I think that's where we're going to be surprised, more like with waiver wire pickups for the Pirates than than players that we drafted and stashed. Yeah, I, I agree. Castro is interesting. I mean, he did eventually prove that he does not, you know, he's not going to hit a home run every single time that he, he makes contact. <laughs> uh, that was kind of fun when he uh, first debuted last year. But yeah, I, I just, yeah, I see a lot of turnover and with all the question marks that there there may be with a player, you know, just like Castro, for example, I don't see the Pirates having, uh, you know, a lot to risk late in the season by, uh, you know, not giving them a shot. Hoy Park is is probably a good example of this. I could see him actually being the the best of those like mixed league fillers because he can do a little bit of everything. He's controlled the strike zone really well at every level. He popped ten homers at AAA with the Yankees last year. Stole eight bases. I mean, he had a three twenty seven, four seventy five, five sixty seven line in forty eight games at AAA Scranton Wilkesbury. Like, show me what that guy can do at at the plate, the big leagues. I think there could be enough there for him to cling on to a role, maybe playing multiple positions. Can you sell me on any of the of the Pirates starting pitchers? You know, I, I know Mitch Keller throwing 100 at Tread this offseason was something people were excited about. Uh, Ronzi Contreras is a prospect that could be breaking through. I mean, I, I think they've got a few different guys. Miguel Yajure has been kind of interesting to me in the past, and, and really in most drafts, it will cost next to nothing to take a chance on these guys. Yeah, and no, I think Contreras and, and Yari are, are you know good uh, late rounders, especially uh, in slightly deeper leagues. But of the the pitchers that will likely start in in the rotation, nobody really exciting there. But I would say fourteen team and deeper, I could see going late on either JT Brubaker or Zach Thompson, especially Brubaker, given that the thing that really kind of spoiled his stat line last year were the home runs, and that looked a little bit out of whack with. Um, with the barrel rate and and, and uh, ground ball rate, so I you know I could see him being kind of a fours ERA kind of guy. Nobody you get really excited about, but you know maybe stream him with good matchups or stream him in, in home starts. You know Zach Thompson I think has a similar kind of appeal. So yeah, in terms of the the more veteran pitchers, you know definitely nobody that I'm <laughs> I'm going out of my way to target, but not not a, a completely uninteresting rotation either. Yeah, I mean Mitch Keller throwing harder at least gives you a glimmer of hope. At the same time, we've been disappointed enough times. Like, how, how long are you going to wait before you let him go if the added velo doesn't make as much of a difference as we want it to? I mean, the fastball has been a problem for him, so maybe you can get away with making more mistakes 
by throwing it harder. But we're now 170 innings into Mitch Keller's major league career. 173 strikeouts. It's pretty nice. A 602 ERA and a 173 whip. How long do they say, yeah, keep starting. This is this is worth pursuing. And when they could maybe put him in the pen, max out that velo, have him go fastball slider, and possibly let him become a closer. I mean, I think in a weird way, Mitch Keller is the biggest threat to David Bednar as the Pirates' closer. If you like Bednar, <laughs> there's not a lot of competition there currently in the bullpen, but Keller could become a threat depending on what his season looks like. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And yeah, when the when the uh, prospects are ready to come up, I mean, not that you know you could necessarily see any of these pitchers, uh, you know, moving, moving to a bullpen role, but that's, I could definitely see that path for, for Mitch Keller makes a lot of sense. It's just so frustrating because with Mitch Keller, we saw good numbers at AAA in 2019, the year of the rabbit ball, 356 ERA, 124 whip that year, well over a strikeout per inning. It looked like everything was on track. We've seen guys with horrible ratios, make changes in the off season, come back and, and, pull a complete 180, right? I mean, Lucas Giolito's done it. Corbin mm-hmm. Burns has done it. So if you if you need some success stories, the off-season transformations, we have them. We have them in the in the recent history of, of our game. It's just, you know, with Keller, okay. How how long do you wait? It, it costs us next to nothing. So you can you can have a peek and see if it works out. Um, but I I really want to see what he looks like in spring training. I want to see how everything plays off of, of the fastball now and how sharp the slider is. And, and once we see it, I think I'll be more likely to decide if I actually want to take the flyer on him as opposed to someone else late in that range. Before we go, let's try some over-unders with Cabrian Hayes because the thing I like most about him is that I think he's a max volume player. He's a great defender at third base. On a rebuilding team, he can hit right around the heart of the order. Or he can be in a prominent table-setting position, so lineup position is going to be good. You know, we saw what Brian Reynolds could do last year, even without a lot of help, with a really good average, over 20 home runs. He was over 90 runs and over 90 RBIs. There's a path here for Cabrian Hayes to do a lot of good things with this playing time, but over under 15 and a half home runs for Cabrian Hayes in 2022. I'm going to take the under on that. Um, I think that's a fair, you know, that that's a fair estimate. But uh, I, I would lean more towards the the relative lack of power production that we saw in 2021 from him, rather than just you know the explosion that we saw in that uh, you know month that he played in 2020. Uh, I'm just not sure where that where that came from, and uh, don't don't really trust that. So if you know we prorate out what he did last season. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at something closer to maybe nine or 10 home runs. And there's, you know, there's quite a gap between that and uh, what you said, 15 and a half. Um, so yeah, I'll, I, I don't expect him to cover that, that full gap. How about this one? 11 and a half stolen bases. He was nine for 10 last year in 96 games. He was 12 for 13 back at AAA in 2019, over 110 games. So very efficient as he's moved through the upper levels of the minors, ran even more. Way back at high A, he was 27 for 32 in 2017. That was in just 108 games. Do you think we can see more than 11 and a half steals from a position where you don't typically get steals? Well, yeah, if you play the proration game, then you'll take the nine steals that he had last year in, in 10 attempts, and uh, he'll easily, easily break that. So I'll, I'll take the over. 
Yeah, interesting. Fangraphs has a 60 uh, grade on his speed, future 55, but if he gets on base enough and the power's not there and this Pirates team struggling to score runs, there could be plenty of green lights based on the, the past efficiency in that area. I think this is the category that's going to ultimately determine whether or not Brian Hayes is actually a little undervalued where he's going right now. Over under a 265 batting average, and I'm pulling these these numbers basically from the projections, kind of picking a a median or close to the median number from from what's out there right now. 265 feels light to me, but I'm curious where you fall on that as a projected uh, average for him. Well, again, you're taking from the projection, so I, I think it's fair, and it's sort of hard to go over or under on it. But I'll I'll take a slight over on on 265. Uh, I think there's room for Hayes to to cut back on the strikeouts at 22% rate last season, which you know is you know right around where it's been uh, over his two seasons combined but in the minors you know rates that that were quite a bit lower so maybe with with some growth and development he cuts back on that a little bit he's been an above average hitter on uh batted balls but um you know i could see that continuing i think he had just two pop-ups all season last year so somebody who could uh definitely avoid outs on balls and play and uh yeah i i could see him toying with 270 He's done a nice job not chasing pitches outside the zone to this point in his career, too. Under 30% for his O-swing percentage to this point. Uh, so you know, we're talking 120 big league games now, stretched out over two seasons. Uh, I think that's a really encouraging part of the profile with Hayes as well. I think the thing that's going to determine whether or not he gets to more power anytime soon is the ground ball rate. That soared last year, 56.7%, highest it's ever been at any professional level for Brian Hayes. So if he could just get into the mid to high 40s. I'm not asking for that much improvement, but if he could just get back to where he was when he broke into the league and where he was at AAA, I think that'll help him unlock a little bit of that power too. And even if we're talking you know, mid-teens power right now and maybe low 20s home run power down the road for people that are in keeper and dynasty formats, if we get an average above that 265 with everyday playing time and a little more speed than expected, uh, I'm actually pretty comfortable with Hayes where he's going. He's just got a, a profile that doesn't look very much like the other third baseman going in that range. Like I guess if, if he looks similar to anybody, it might be Yoan Mankata right now, which is surprising given that Mankata has at least flashed more power at the big league level. But a lot of those other later third base options are, are low to mid-20s home run players that have batting average risk and not a lot of speed. Hayes could actually be good in batting average and and get us double-digit steals, which is just a really fun player to have in the pool. Well, we have to go. Before we go, I should say, if you have not checked it out already, the draft kit for 2022 has launched at The Athletic, and if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for $1 a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast so be sure to check that out if you haven't done so already on twitter al is at al melchior bb i am at Derek van riper that's going to do it for this episode of the athletic fantasy baseball podcast we're back with you friday with under the radar